Hello and welcome back to Talking Flutes Extra. The cheese without the onion, the boiled egg without the salt, the gin without the tonic, the flute without the head joint or simply the extra podcasts which are sandwiched every other week between the real ones by the lovely Claire Southworth. I'm Jean-Paul Wright, well at least I was the last time I looked, <laughs> sorry about that. This week on TF Extra we have the joke of the week from that guy in London and we have an interview with the Queen of Low Flutes, Dr Carla Reese. But first, as is becoming the norm recently, I'd like to start with an email which I received from a Luke Madison who lives in Sydney, Australia. Luke goes on to say, Hello, I'm really enjoying the podcasts and even my mum who doesn't play the flute listens to them on a Tuesday as we're ahead of you in time. The question I'd like to ask Claire or that guy that does the other ones, which I presume is me, is that my teacher has said that I need to look at upgrading my flute to a better one. I currently play on a silver-plated flute, which I've had for four years. However, my mum, Shirley, can't understand why I have to buy another flute, as she says that, surely, not Shirley, one flute is the same as another flute. Now, as she listens to these podcasts, can you give her a shout-out and tell her why my teacher has recommended I upgrade my flute? Well, Luke, let me speak directly to your mum. Hi, Shirley. It's Jean-Paul here. So let's get straight to the point. Now, I believe Luke's teacher has recommended that he upgrades his flute, possibly not because there is anything necessarily wrong with the instrument he has, but more likely that he feels that Luke has progressed far enough that he needs to expand his tonal colours and sound quality. You see... The addition, for example, of some silver in the head joint really does open up so many more tonal options and we certainly help your son in advancing his ability and performance. The head joint, which is the most important part of the instrument, and I cannot emphasise the more highly, on a good branded flute is a much more superior design on a step-up instrument compared to a starter flute. For example, on our flutes, our TJ-10X head joint, which is on the silver-plated model, has been designed to be very free-blowing and easy to play, which is perfect if you're just after starting the instrument or returning back to flute playing after many years. However, our step-up silver head joint TJ Cantable flute has a head joint which is more resistant and encourages the player to find their sound, rather than having the sound just appear, as in the 10X starter flute. The softer material of the 925 Silver TJ Cantable head joint also gives greater flexibility of sound, dynamic variations and tonal colours compared to the harder silver-plated head joint of the 10X. A quick analogy for you, Shirley. Uh, Imagine for a moment driving a small car with a small engine up a steep hill. How you would often struggle the higher up the hill you go. Now imagine putting a bigger, more responsive engine into the same car, the feel and performance up that hill will be so much better. And that is what you will get when you upgrade your flute. You will get a greater feel and performance with your music, which will open up so many more performance options. So I suggest that you go to your nearest specialist music store and just listen to Luke playing some step-up silverhead flutes, as I reckon you'll be able to hear the difference. Luke will certainly be able to feel the difference in response and resonance, for example, on a silverhead flute. 
You see, silver is a softer material than the silver-plated nickel tube of a starter flute, and so it allows more variation and flexibility of tonal colours. So in short, does your son have to change his flute? Well, the answer is no, as I'm sure that his current flute, providing it's a good branded starter flute, will continue to be okay for his playing for some time to come. The need to upgrade is purely because your teacher feels that he will benefit as a musician from experiencing the extra tonal colour options and that this will enhance his playing, performance and development as a musician. I'm also presuming that your son is playing on what we would call a closed hole flute. Nearly all first flutes are. This is where all the touch pieces, where the fingers touch, are solid. In upgrading your flute, your son will also probably be expected to move over to open holes. So this is where the keys for the second and third fingers on the left hand and the first, second and third fingers on the right hand have holes in the touch pieces. This will take a little getting used to. However, as the fingers then have to be precisely placed over each of the holes compared to the current one, where it doesn't matter as long as the key is being depressed, then the note will sound. With open holes, If the hole isn't fully covered by the pad of the finger, then the note will not sound. Most step-up flutes come with little plastic plugs, which you can put in the holes and then carefully take out, one at a time, when you have become accustomed to the correct finger positioning. Ultimately, the choice has to be yours, as I do appreciate that it is an extra expense, and I also understand that the need to upgrade does rather flummox parents, as they see one flute looking very much the same as another. One question you may have as a result of this podcast is, okay, so what is the best step-up model flute to buy? And my answer is very, very simple. It's whatever suits Luke the most and is what is affordable to you as a parent. So, for example, when you go to your music dealer, ask them to lay out the step-up flutes within the price category and then just get Luke to play through them. And he will have a feel. He will know once he starts blowing the instruments which one resonates more with him, which one feels better. I mean, does it have to be with a certain brand? We all have different mouths. We all have different chops. We all have different ways of playing. So really, it has to be the instrument that suits your son the most. Now, that was rather a long answer for a quick question. However, I do hope that I've managed to at least give some reasons whilst Luke's teacher has suggested that he looks at upgrading his flute. And I'm really sorry, Shirley. Yes, it will mean paying more money for an extra flute, but hopefully he's got a first flute that you will be able to resell and at least get some of the additional expense back. We're fantastic, thank you, Graham. Do you have a joke for me? Yeah, I've got a nice little story here for you. Yeah, go ahead. A Los Angeles recording session ground to a halt yesterday when an oboe player who was constantly sucking on her reed to keep it moist during rests and between takes inadvertently inhaled and swallowed it. The conductor immediately called 911 and asked what he should do. The operator said to him, use a muted trumpet instead. I thought you'd like that. Bye.
So, moving over to my laptop, I am now joined via Skype, even though I can't see her, by the lovely and mega-talented musician, composer, arranger, conductor, photographer, the list goes on, Carla Reese. Hi, Carla. Hi, how are you? Fine, this is weird, not being able to see you on Skype. I'm not sure why it's not working, I'm sorry about that. Do you think it's mine? No, no, my green light's working. It's probably just as well. You don't want to see an old guy like me. It would ruin your afternoon. No, I, I can see you. It's just that you can't see me. Oh, you can see me. Oh, good yeah. grief. You poor thing. <laughs> what am I doing? Waving. You're waving. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> so you can't see me and I don't know why. Oh, that's a shame. That's a shame. If any of you listening have an interest in low flutes, then I have no doubt that you'll have heard and probably come across Carla along the way. Based in the UK, Carla is a low flute specialist and over the years has gained an international reputation for her innovative performances, compositions and work on the flute. She finished her PhD at the Royal College of Music in 2014. You can always interrupt if I'm getting it wrong, Carla. Oh, that's fine. Uh, researching extended <laughs> techniques for the Kingma system, alto and bass flutes and is currently programme leader for music at the Open College of Arts and an honorary research associate and flute teacher at the Royal Holloway University in London. Well, I can breathe now. Yeah, it's a bit too much, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, I could have kept on going on looking at your bio online. <laughs> Carla, you're known for your love, appreciation and development of contemporary flute performance, and also for breaking down the barriers for flute players to feel comfortable dipping their toes, and then embracing, that was an important word, embracing with freedom the extended techniques. Can you take me back to how this love for the unknown started? Well, I was, it's hard to know for sure. Um, I think I've always been fascinated by new things. When I was a kid, I was a really big fan of Mozart. That was my kind of main <laughs> musical thing. And then suddenly I met Robert Dick. I was, I think I must have been about 14. And I was at one of these flute conventions. I think it was the one at the, at the Royal College. And Robert Dick did some demonstration of, you know, the stuff that he does with his amazing yeah. monophonics and things. And it just completely blew my mind. Um, and before that, well, up to that point, I'd been composing and I'd been doing various bits of arranging and just kind of playing with sound. And suddenly to discover that these kind of sounds were available as well, it was just, it was like opening the door to something new and very exciting. Was it a real bang or was it just unlock a curiosity that made you want to go back and actually explore yourself? It made me very curious but I think the thing that it was a bit frustrating because at that time it was really hard to get any information from anywhere so you know I was a kid we didn't really <laughs> have much internet back then because um, <laughs> I'm so old but we basically I mean to get hold of Robert's books even was very difficult and my dad was working sort of had a job where he was traveling quite a lot and he ended up doing a business trip to New York at some point and brought back all these books Robert's books as sort of um you know tone development through ah, yes the other flutes and all those kinds of things and suddenly I had this sort of amount of resource that I could use but I mean at that time none of my teachers had heard of anything like multiphonics and it was just like this alien thing that nobody knew about so it was kind of it was really exciting but it was also kind of a bit seemed a bit distant and impossible to start with so were, um, you, were you one of the first do you know that just sort of jumped onto this after having heard Robert bearing in mind your teachers hadn't heard of extended techniques yeah, well, it's hard to know for sure, because I'm sure at that time there were lots of kind of grown-up flute players doing similar things. But I grew up in Lincolnshire, so I was a bit cut off from the world of flute in general. Well, it's very flat and agricultural around there, isn't it? Yeah, 
And, and certainly in terms of like new music, it didn't really exist in Lincolnshire. I mean, that was, <laughs> was not really a thing that we did. So, I mean, I remember for my GCSE composition, I wrote a piece that had some multiphonics in for solo flute. And I remember it came back from the exam board with a sort of comment saying, well, this isn't possible. So you need to make a recording to prove that it can be done. Ooh. So I guess it was fairly unusual still at that time. But I, I mean, I don't know whether other people, I mean, I didn't know other people that were doing it. But I had also seen scores that looked entirely impossible, you know, those kind of contemporary notation type things yeah. that I couldn't even get close to understanding at that age. So I think I definitely had a curiosity and it was kind of the same with the alto flute that again, when I started playing that, it was it was something that other people didn't really do. So I don't know if it was just that I was sort of particularly innovative or, or more just that I sort of found a thing that interested me because it was a bit unusual. So what happened? Your dad bought the music back and obviously the study book from Robert and you just became addicted to exploring that genre straight away or did it evolve over time? I think I was kind of, I think I was quite experimental. I mean, it, I used to sort of, I was probably quite annoying as a kid. I mean, I used to do things like, you know, I'd sort of lie on the floor and write a symphony for fun just because it was, it, I got bored easily, I think, and I'm still the same. It's this thing about needing to do things all the time. So I've never been someone that can just sit in front of the TV and watch it. I have to do something at the same time. Um, so I think a lot of it was to do with just sort of finding things to explore. It was just a sort of curiosity. So at the beginning stages, it was very much kind of, I guess, slow moving in the sense that I was trying to teach myself from Robert's books and just kind of see where I could go with it. Um, but then a bit later on, Robert came over to, he was, he was living in Switzerland at the time, and he came over to London to do some private lessons. So I started having lessons with him. But I guess I was probably an undergrad by then, because I was already in London. But that was, that was quite exciting, because suddenly I had access to this, and I could sort of ask him questions and throw ideas around and things. So you jumped in with two feet by yourself a long time ago. So what advice would you give to any listener who is thinking about or is worried about where to start with the extended techniques? Well, I think actually the biggest problem is the perception that absolutely, yeah. You know, with with anything that's new, any sort of potentially sort of difficult music, there's this perception that somehow you have to be able to understand it, or that maybe that you have to like it. And actually, <laughs> I think there's plenty to love about all this, all kinds of music. Actually, not just sort of you know uber weird contemporary music. But I think the main thing is from a listening perspective is to come in with an open mind. I mean, a lot of my students at the Open College of Arts, they're, they're kind of, it's a distance learning composition degree. A lot of the students are adults who've come to the doing a music degree sort of later in life for various different reasons. But a lot of them have had relatively limited exposure to sort of you know, contemporary music and especially the sort of more experimental side of things. And it's very interesting watching their journey from kind of you know, the beginning where they're sort of encouraged to sort of dip a toe in the water and see what it's like to actually sort of watching them slowly gradually over time sort of falling in love with it and I think for me one of the main key points is the fact that it's about emotion music is always about emotion mm. music is always expressing an emotion and I think there is a certain amount of music that's written in a sort of academic environment that can come across as very dry but actually if you forget about trying to analyse it and understand it and just accept it from an emotional point of view, then you might find something interesting. And and I think the thing about emotion in music is like it doesn't emotion isn't always good emotion. It's not always happy, it's not always fluffy. Sometimes it can be really challenging. 
And sometimes it can be something that really kind of makes you feel bad or angry or, you know, <laughs> but, but for me, music is about all of that. It shouldn't just be that. I mean, there's plenty of music being written that's kind of, you know, all about feel good, happy feelings, but I don't think it always has to be about that. And I think also the other thing that makes people feel good is sometimes quite opposing. So, you know, there might be somebody that really likes to listen to consonant music as a way of feeling kind of relaxed and everything. For me, if I listen to a load of dissonance, it makes me insanely happy. It's great. Um, or microtonality or something like that. But it's just about being able to explore different elements of emotion. Is that because you, you, enable, you enable people to create a narrative and then from that narrative they've got complete freedom to do everything? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think people also respond to the music in their own ways. I mean, one of the things that I feel very strongly about when I'm performing is that if I'm playing some contemporary piece that's maybe, I mean, I do a lot of new music that's kind of, you know, maybe first performances. Some of it I'm still testing. You know, sometimes when things get performed the first time, it's still in the research stage in some ways. But I'm very keen not to tell audiences what to feel or what to think before they hear it. It's more important that it's just presenting something and it's up to the people listening to make their own journey through. And to find a way that makes sense. And it might be that you need to listen to a piece sort of 10 or 15 times to actually start to make sense of it. But then for me, that's really good because if there's a piece of music that you can listen to 10 or 15 times and still find new depth in it, that's a really good sign. But the stuff that really turns me off is the stuff that you listen to once and there's nowhere left to go because you've got everything. Yeah, no, I, I, complete, I completely get that. So when you're premiering a new work... Do you give an overview of what's going on or what the piece is about or do you just give the title and let the audience make their own picture, their own narrative? Um, it depends a little bit on what the composers want. Sometimes they like to include programme notes, but I'm actually less and less sort of tending to do that because I think it's better just to keep it open. I mean, there's one project I've been doing recently where I've been playing contemporary music on the Baroque flute. Yeah, um, that, that sounds absolutely wonderful, doesn't it? Contemporary it, music. It's great fun. But basically, it's kind of trying to find how... I mean, because I love... This is the other thing, is people assume, because I play contemporary music all the time, that I'm not interested in historical music, but actually that's totally not true. Um, <laughs> I play Bach every day, because, it's, again, it's great music that has depth. That's more what I'm interested in. But with the Baroque project, it's presenting new works in between Baroque pieces. So you're basically looking at two different aspects of the instrument. And seeing, you know, well, this is what it does in this style and this is what it's capable of in this style. And it's a big learning process because I'm discovering what's, what it's possible to do on these instruments, which, of course, is very different to have a key, uh, you know, <laughs> flute with one key on it compared to a sort of Kingmar system flute with lots of keys on it. But it's from an audience perspective, it's still the same instrument. It's still a flute playing in different styles and hearing the two together makes, I think, creates its own narrative. And it's the instrument that holds it all together. So how do you feel that the use of extended techniques and compositions improves a flute player and their performance? I think it's an essential part of being a flute player. From the point of view that, I mean, extended techniques have been around for a very long time yeah. now. They're not a new thing. And I think if you, if you were to be the kind of player that says, oh, I don't play multiphonics, that would be kind of the equivalent as being the kind of player that says, I never play A. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'm going to play all the other notes, but I'm not going to play A. It's part of the instrument. It's part of what the instrument does. And it's also part of, you know, the Baroque flute, which, okay, it's a historical instrument and the instruments I play on are copies of the old ones, but they're still capable of doing these techniques. And it's all a part of, it's basically a part of our expression. It's a way of 
sort of demonstrating the kinds of sounds and that I mean sometimes you want to be really violent and aggressive and play some kind of big screechy thing it's a similar thing of playing high register things as well actually because if you think about the modern flute you know the range of the modern flute is quite a lot bigger than the range of a baroque flute but it wouldn't necessarily seem strange to play a top C in a piece of music because it's so normal now it's in everything you know we're, we're used to playing top C's and D's and above I mean okay if you're going to the F or the G above it that's possibly a bit extreme but it's all part of developing what the instrument does and how we can express ourselves through the instrument. So I think, you know, in terms of improving technique, it's it's opening the doors to all kinds of things. If you're learning how to play, for example, whistle tones, you have to know exactly where to put the air and the speed of the air and how to use resonance, how to change the shape of the inside of your mouth. Same with multiphonics. I mean, to be able to balance the notes within a multiphonic and choose dynamically what the dominant note is that takes so much control of the airstream and of course you put that into playing baroque music or classical music you know mozart concerto but you've got the ability to control the airstream that closely then of course when you're playing mozart you've got a lot more space to express yourself i remember quite a long time ago you actually told me about an a there's so many different ways of playing an a that um, there's an angry way there's a happy way there's a sad way there's a, a violent way and Absolutely. And can, that's what you're doing, isn't it? Contemporary flute, you're giving the performer permission to actually explore, as you say, emotions within each and every note. Yeah, and I think when you're playing, every note has to have that kind of life to it. And it doesn't matter what repertoire you're playing. You know, if you're playing any kind of piece from any part of music history, you have to make sure that every note comes to life. And so it's just about using what's available to us as a range of expression. So tell me about rare scale. Which is known, well, throughout, well, I've known it for a while, as a flexible instrument contemporary chamber music ensemble. So how did that start and how have you managed to push the concept forward? Well, Rare Scale actually came about because when I finished college, I wanted to specialise on the alto flute. And a lot of people said to me, you're mad, it's never going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Little did um, they know. So the primary reason why they said it wouldn't work was because, well, of course, remember, Still, extended techniques were sort of existing, but a little bit strange. And an alto flute had to have closed holes. Well, it didn't. That's not true. But the majority of alto flutes had closed holes. So it was all about what the instrument was capable of at that point was very much about the kind of very limited repertoire. So, I mean, when I started specialising on alto, there was, you know, a few kind of not very interesting, slightly sort of cheesy pieces that didn't really go anywhere. And then a couple of insanely difficult contemporary pieces that just terrified me. And there wasn't really anything else. And so a lot of it, people were saying, you can't have a career as an alto flute player because there isn't any repertoire. But then I was doing some research as part of my degree and found out about Ava's work and the potential for open holes and extra things on the alto flute. And of course, once you have an instrument that has the same capabilities as a C flute and then a few more, it means that you can do a lot more stuff in terms of expression. Um, and that made it very exciting for composers. So the whole thing with Rare Scale, the whole idea originally was that it would place the alto flute within some kind of recital situation. But trying to develop repertoire for the alto flute in combinations with all kinds of different instruments. So that might be maybe sort of alto flute piano, maybe alto flute guitar, maybe a bit of percussion, maybe electronics, whatever combinations we could come up with and because it didn't have the sort of fixed combinations that the flute has traditionally it was kind of an open canvas to do whatever we felt like 
Um, so I collected people. I basically, at that time, this was 2003, I found players that were kind of interested, like-minded, sort of slightly experimental people. Um, and we started by holding a competition for composers where the, the brief was they had to write a piece for alto flute plus one other instrument. And we got, oh, it was crazy. It was supposed to be some tiny little competition between the different composition departments at the music colleges. And we ended up with something like 80 entries from all over the world. Crikey. So it was kind of turned into a big thing. And then suddenly there are 80 new pieces for alto flute, <laughs> which was a pretty good start for an ensemble. Yeah. Um, we shortlisted a few and did a final. And then there was a winner. But basically that set us up with the repertoire. And then ever since then, we've been working very much in the same way, sort of collaborating with composers, doing different combinations of instruments and just, just creating a repertoire, basically. I think it's been something I've lost. I lost count many years ago, but I think, well, I get sent a new piece pretty much at least one every week from somebody somewhere. But in general, I think overall it's more than 800 pieces that we've sort of collected um, since then. Blimey, I'll speak about your online resource, your publishing website in a moment, but you are a passionate advocate of the Kingmas system flute and the large array of possibilities this mechanism opens up for a flute player. Now, I've personally tried the Kingmas system flutes over the years, and whilst they initially messed with the brain, I found it so very logical, and it does, uh, it does indeed open up so many more possibilities, such as quarter and half tones. So how do you, as a player and advocate of the Kingmas system mechanism, feel that more people should investigate and explore it? Well, I kind of look at it like the equivalent of a Baroque flute, actually, in some ways. Oh, good grief, really? In the sense that when you're playing a Baroque flute, when you play Baroque repertoire on a Baroque flute, there are all kinds of colours and subtleties and expressions and things that you can get on that instrument that you can't get on a modern flute. Sure. So that makes the Baroque flute a kind of the right tool for the job, essentially. So if you're playing... If you're playing Baroque music on a modern flute, it's quite a different feeling than if you're playing it on the instrument it was intended for. So that's on that side. And on the other side, you have the Kingmas system, which means that you've got so many more capabilities and it's got so many more possibilities creatively that for me, if I'm playing on a berm flute now, it feels like a sort of, a sort of standard berm flute with open holes, feels like a sort of thing from a particular era of history. So... In terms, I mean, I play King West System flutes for everything. I don't actually have a normal, I have a, a an open hole alto as well, but I don't play on standard system flutes anymore. And the King West System, for me, one of the things that's so special about it is the fact that all the extra keys are kind of, they're so logical and they're positioned so carefully yes. that you can play it like a normal flute. And it's a bit like having a whole load of extra trill keys that, you know, I mean, imagine... If you think about a normal flute, if you took the trill keys off, you'd feel really kind of like <laughs> someone had just tied your arm behind your back or something. And I feel like that when I play a normal standard flute, because I think of all the extra keys of the Kingma system as being almost like a load of extra trill keys that open the possibilities. And it's funny because when I first started playing it, I was quite conscious of all the little things in the pieces. I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is a Kingma system thing, this particular sound or whatever. And now it's become so normal that I feel like a little bit, almost feel like kind of composers aren't challenging me and using the system enough but of course they are it's just that I've become so used to it that that's now my everyday life you know the fact that I have a flute that means that I can play quarter tones I've got this massive range of multiphonics I've got a whole load of it you know alternative fingerings at least one for every single note on the instrument wouldn't it be great if Ava's flutes that's Ava Kingma that is were the mechanism was 
just more widely available so that everybody Absolutely. can embrace this this gorgeous quarter yeah. and half tone malarkey. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things is I feel like it's kind of somehow got a bit of a sort of reputation of being this kind of niche specialist contemporary music only thing. But I mean, for example, as part of Reska, we have a flute academy, which is a flute choir for university level players and upwards. Um, and there are four members of that group, apart from me, that play on King System flutes. It's not, you know, and these are, that includes, for example, a second year undergrad. Oh, well, she's just about to go into the second year of her undergrad. So she's still actually still technically first year. It's not a niche thing that you can only use for contemporary music. You can use it for all repertoire. I mean, I play Bach on Kima System every single day. It's more about having more possibilities. And yes, some of those possibilities are more kind of related to contemporary music, but not all of them by any means. And I think a lot of the problem, of course, when you add that many extra keys to a flute, is going to add something to the price. There's not a lot you can do about that. There's not a way of getting around that. It's the same as if you have a B foot or if you want to have a C-sharp trill or any of those things, it's something that gets added. But yeah, absolutely, I think they should be made. You know, my ideal would be that all the flute makers and especially the kind of, you know, budget area that's yeah. kind of deal. I mean, the, the perfect time for people to start getting into this stuff is really the beginning of their undergrads. Because by that point, they've got enough of a technical control of the instrument. I mean, it's a bit like upgrading to open holes. And for me, there's a very clear progression. You know, you start as a beginner with a closed hole flute, maybe with a curved head if you're very small. And then at some point you can update, upgrade to open holes. And then when you've done that, then you can upgrade to the Kingma system. For me, there's no question. It's like, it's just, it's part of playing the flute. You know, my views, I actually love the, the system. I'd like to be able to afford it myself, but unfortunately I have two two kids going, do, going through their masters at the moment. So I'll have to put that on hold. It's interesting, the cost of it, because I mean, the, the sea flutes at the moment, Lev, Levitt makes them yep. in America. And they're not any more expensive than if you wanted to buy a sort of top-end professional instrument. I mean, it's yes, it's expensive, but if you're buying a professional-level flute, it's expensive. I mean, it I is. don't... Yeah. You know, and Lev's flutes are just amazing. I mean, the workmanship, and the, it's fantastic. So the bottom line is you're investing in ex- exploration and opening up yourself to more opportunities and possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You also have this fabulous online resource website called, and I'm going to, I get, always get this wrong, but it's <laughs> tech, tech, tech Practice Publishing. Well done. <laughs> can you give me an overview of the website and what players can find that when they visit? Yeah, well, Tetractus is a kind of, well, essentially it's a publishing company. So, But it's it's not like other publishing companies in the sense that I'm following a self-publishing model, but I'm publishing several other composers. So basically it's tied in with Rayscale. Um, the composers write music. Usually a lot of the work that gets developed with Rayscale, it's collaborative. So the composers very rarely have commission fees, partly because the funding is so difficult to get hold of, but also because we do a lot of international collaborations. So that means that it's not always easy to get money for collaborating with composers across different borders and, you know, different funding structures and whatever. So the publishing company is partly my way of helping the composers. So they get a much bigger share of the sales money than they would do through a conventional publisher. And also 10% of all the sales goes to rare scale towards putting on more performances of their pieces. So it all kind of ties together. So we have music. Essentially, it's sort of specialising in music for low flutes. Um, but there is also music for Baroque flute on there. There's a few piccolo pieces as well, weirdly, because um, <laughs> occasionally every so often I play the piccolo. Um, and there's also a load of arrangements for flute ensemble, which are linked in with Rescale Flute Academy. So that's a group 
as I said before, it's it's based on sort of advanced level players, but it's to teach them how to play low flutes. So a lot of those arrangements are completely uncompromising in terms of the low flute parts. So I don't kind of make things easier just because it's on an alto. If people follow you on Twitter, they'll also know that you do circulate links to really interesting uh, compositions of the day or compositions of the week. And as you say, it could be quite weird, couldn't it? It could be something like an alto flute and electronics. That's not weird. That's normal. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, there's so much potential of what you can do. The trouble is, I think for a long time, with the flute, we've been kind of pushed down this path of flute and piano as being, you know, the recital combination. Oh, yes. Um, but, of course, with Rare Scale and with the alto flute, I, I'm not a huge fan of alto flute and piano. It has to be written for very carefully to balance right. But there are loads of combinations that work really well. So alto flute and guitar is a big favourite of mine. As soon as you add electronics to anything, it gets really exciting. So the thing about electronics is, you know, again, Years ago, back in the day, you'd have to have, you know, roomfuls of kit to do everything. And now it's so easy. You just need a laptop and a microphone and job done. Um, so there's quite a few pieces for alto flute with electronics. And there's, yeah, a whole range of different things, really. And also on there, there's a whole load of resources about the music. So there's composer biographies. There's program notes for most of the pieces, score samples, recordings, that kind of thing. So there's lots of ways of kind of, you know, as a way of discovering new repertoire. It's quite an interesting place to go. And then I've also written a few blog posts about how to play low flutes, things like hand positions, posture, how to use the air, that kind of thing. Well, all the links to the websites that we're speaking about here will be underneath this podcast post. Carla, you let's deviate off for a second. Let's deviate off the flute. To one passion, which I know we both share, photography. Yay. What gets you excited with photography? Ah, textures, composition. It's a bit like music, actually. I mean, I, 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 oh, there's another PhD in there somewhere, but I think the connection between photography and music is enormous. And actually perception of time as well. It's all going to get a bit deep and philosophical, but when you're dealing with a photograph, you're, you're freezing a moment in time and you're thinking about the composition, how it's constructed and eye lines and things through things. I actually think very similarly about music because a good piece of music will change your perception of time and the structure and the composition and the the way that you're leading the audience through the music. Is... That's really interesting because your photography, you, you don't take the, the normal bog standard path, do you, of just snapping away. You very carefully look at what you're going to take. And, and, then, and then, as you say, want to invite the viewer into looking at the image more closely. Yeah, I've always been really fascinated by things like peeling paint and rusty metalwork and... You know, those kind of textures that in themselves are a bit abstract, but if you look at them, the more you look at them, the more you see and the more little tiny details you see and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's one of my kind of secret passions is to go and take pictures of rusty railings and things. <laughs> and or bikes as well. I've got and lampposts. That's another one I've got a lot of. <laughs> but yeah, those kind of things I, I find just massively fascinating for some reason. And do you find when you're taking photography, you can switch off from music or is that thought still going through your head? Uh, it depends what I'm doing. Sometimes the music's... I, I don't know if I can ever really switch music off, actually. I think it's always there somewhere. And I think structure is always... Yeah, sometimes musical structures can come through in a photo- photograph as well. And um, the other thing that I find really interesting is when I'm doing live event photography. It's very often for flute festivals. And that's really interesting because it's so connected with the music. Like, So if you're taking a photo of a flute player and... They're in the middle of playing a phrase. The one place you don't want to take a photograph is one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Because <laughs> you get some really shocking pictures then. You know, and if you understand the music and you know the structure of the music and you know, for example, where there's going to be a big loud chord so you can, you know, take a picture without offending the entire audience with the sound of a camera, um, you have to know the music and you have to be able to predict how the player is going to respond to the music as well. Do you know, it's a really fair point. I've never thought of it before. <laughs> Crikey, that is exactly right. Know the score, know the piece. And you yeah. know when to you know when the the good shots or potentially good shots are going to arise. And the other thing I really love doing with flute players is that if you've got big zoom lens and you can look really closely at what they're doing, it's fascinating. That's cruel, Carla. <laughs> I don't tell anyone. I don't take pictures of things particularly that way. <laughs> can really learn a lot. I think one thing is I'm always very keen to keep learning, and it's the same in everything I do. I mean, you know, I feel like a beginner all the time. And I deliberately give myself challenges to kind of push myself further. I mean, that's where the whole Baroque flute thing came from, really, was sort of trying to give myself a new challenge and push things a little bit further. And I've learned so much from it. Carl um, Reese, PhD, a life learner, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before we conclude, Carl, let's talk about the future flute festival being held at St John Smith Square, 17th to 19th of August. What's on the schedule? How do people find out more? Buy tickets, etc. Well, this is the BFS's current project. So the idea is being programmed by Edward Blakeman. Kate Hill's helping out, doing all sorts of amazing things, just getting it all running. Basically, the idea is it's reflecting what it means to be a flute player in the modern world. So it's not quite like it used to be in the sense that you could have a job as a flute player and just stay with that job forever. It's like to be a flute player these days, you're more likely to have a portfolio career you're more likely to be doing all kinds of extra things that go with flute playing. And I think that's certainly something that I identify with. I think if all I did was play the flute, it would, I'd lose out on a lot. There's a lot of things that kind of connect to playing the flute. So my involvement with it, apart from obviously being editor of Pan, I've got various sort of bits of article. I'll probably have a camera out with me as well. But we're doing a concert at the very beginning, kicking things off, which is in a sort of Ava Kingma sort of, celebration concert i think that's the best way of putting it because she's about to be presented with the lifetime achievement award at the nfa so we're doing we're presenting a concert that's actually happening in america first and then we're bringing it over to london um and anne laberge who's a real king system pioneer she was one of the first or possibly even the first um she's writing a new piece and there are a few of us who are kind of king system players that will be playing in this thing together so there'll be some improvisation there'll be some electronics it's going to be amazing. Um, so that's being written at the moment. That's So that's the kicking off the whole festival. And then there's a whole load of really exciting performers playing. Um, some of them might not be particularly well-known here. I mean, we've got some of the usual sort of British big names, Ian Clark, Wissam, Bustani, those kind of people. But there's one of the main headliners is Stefan Hoskels, an absolutely phenomenal player. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing his recital. Um, Sophie Cherrier is coming to do something. And there's some Baroque stuff. Stephen Preston's doing a Baroque dance workshop. Very different from the usual type of convention. Absolutely. And it's all in one space. So it's kind of, you know, lots of concerts to hear. But there's also a chance to play because Mel Oris is running a flute choir. Oh, beautiful. So everyone could come and play. And she's she's got a great programme together of various different interesting mixture of arrangements and new pieces. And I think one of the things that the performers have been asked to do is that, to include a piece that's been written in the last 10 years in every performance wow um, so it really is modern day looking but it's forward. Not, yeah i mean it's not going to be a kind of you know avant-garde contemporary music squeak fest i mean <laughs> it's very interesting <laughs> i mean I, this is one thing i still find fascinating is that the perception of contemporary music immediately is people kind of bristle a little bit going oh it's going to be really weird but you know i ian clark 
he's his music is contemporary. He's going to be playing with some again. It's new music in that it's being written now, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be difficult. Uh, the other person that's coming, very sort of contemporary-minded, um, Tillman Danehard, and he's going to be doing beatboxing on a contrabass flute or, you know, something equally cool. I think he's going to do a bit of a workshop as well. But I think, you know, it's the thing about contemporary in all the senses, it's music's still alive, you know? It's like something vibrant, something developing. And I think the festival is going to be a real kind of exploration of that. And that you can still be playing Baroque music and it will still have this sense of vibrancy. It's not just about kind of strange noises and kind of squeaky things. It, it can be the whole thing. Yeah, contemporary music. As I, I regard contemporary music like I do, the millions of people that visit Tate Modern every year. Absolutely. Um, it's, it is. It's a genre that as we're all getting older and time's progressing, people are embracing more contemporary because it does open up more auditory functions and visual yeah. images within the brain yeah i think so it's always been interesting that contemporary art somehow feels more acceptable than contemporary music to the general populace yeah. um, do you think that's down to the music industry in itself yeah i think it's to do with partly the music industry partly about investment actually yeah. i mean you know there's the tape modern what an amazing space what if we had something equivalent for contemporary music you know, what tends to happen with contemporary music is you get shoved into these kind of tiny little venues somewhere where you have an audience of 20 people because it just doesn't have the same kind of investment in it. And I think that's that's a real shame because I think potentially, you know, you bring it all together, you bring it a little bit more out into the open and you can get some very interesting things happening. But I suppose at least the contemporary music scene is going north rather than south, so at least it's in the right direction, albeit slower than the visual arts. Yeah, absolutely. And there's huge potential. I mean, actually, one thing I've seen change a lot over the last few years is, you know, when my university students turn up to start with, you know, when I started doing that sort of level of teaching, they all wanted to play French repertoire. It was kind of, yeah, we play French music. This is great. What happens now is that within the first couple of weeks, usually every single one of my students says, OK, I've been doing the same stuff. You know, the things I have to do for my associated board exams, I want something different. What, what can you recommend? And that seems to be a real thing now. There's need to do something a bit different. And, you know, people wanting to play recital programmes where people are playing different repertoire from everybody else. You know, there's nothing more kind of tedious than the sort of imagine you're a, you're a university student about to do your final recital and everybody's doing the same programme. I mean, that puts all kind of pressure on everybody. And at my university, they have freedom of choice. So that means that they can express themselves through their choice of repertoire as well. Um, does that, does that, guess, sorry, does that mean you give, you give everybody a golden ticket to be individual? Absolutely. And that means that amongst my current undergrad students, I've got some that are kind of contemporary music, kind of, you know, aficionados that are really happy and comfortable playing extended techniques and looking at different types of notation and that kind of thing. And I've got a couple that play Baroque flute are interested in that. I've got one actually who plays Baroque flute that's also been doing some Irish music on it because she's very interested in folk music. It gives them a chance to discover what it is that they're interested in. And I think there's also this sense that music can be timeless. I mean, the fact that a piece might have been written 300 years ago doesn't make it any less relevant to now than something that's written now. But potentially, if you mix it all up, and don't kind of put things into boxes and just let it be music and choose from it, then you can get some really exciting kind of juxtapositions of repertoire. If you think Mozart and Bach were alive today, they would be embracing contemporary, wouldn't they? Absolutely, no question. Because they were contemporary. I mean, I think this is one of the things that's changed for us with music. 
is that, you know, this, this notion of music comes from the past and from the present didn't used to happen. I mean, in Bach's era, they only played music from that era. And there's a sense that composers might be old fashioned if they're writing in a slightly out of date style. Whereas now we've got the, the, all the traditional stuff, a whole tradition of music that's come through, plus things that are being added to it. And I think actually it's more difficult for composers in some senses because to do something truly original now is very hard. Yeah, it is extremely hard to be completely unique in what you're doing. And actually to make a living doing that is um, probably harder now than it's ever been. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I get a lot of student work still where they, you know, writing in tonal languages, there's nothing wrong with tonality. People assume that, you know, just because it's, you know, we're asking for contemporary music, it has to be full of dissonances and weirdness. Tonality is absolutely fine, but tonality that's original is very hard. And I think, so, you know, composers that can do that really well, I mean, that's that's really something that's quite impressive to be able to do that. And I think it's just, you know, now we've got such a diversity of what makes up contemporary music. And part of it is because it's not been tested yet. You know, a big part of my role as a performer is, is a sort of research and development role in a sense. So, for example, I'm doing a concert on Thursday, which is bonkers project again but it's a new idea that we came up with it's a trio a contrabass flute contrabassoon and contrabass clarinet and when we first had this idea of doing the concert we didn't have any repertoire that was about three weeks ago now we've got 30 new pieces um and we asked composers to write miniatures and to kind of you know just write pieces between one and three minutes long for that trio um and it's really interesting, it's a learning process for all of us, because the composers didn't know what those three instruments would sound like together, and nor did we as performers until last Saturday when we tried all the pieces out. You know, some of them work amazingly well, and some of them we're not going to perform in this concert because they need a little bit more development. But, you know, that's how you build a repertoire. But of course, when we present things to an audience, they've never been performed before. And the composers haven't heard how the instruments sound, so it's still part of the development. And then sometimes I feel like you have to test things in front of an audience in a concert situation to know whether you need to make further changes and how they work in that sort of situation. Whereas, of course, you compare that with the sort of historical music that's been around for two or three hundred years. It's so well tried and tested that, you know, it's going to work. So I think it's also that element of kind of experimentation and development and just exploring what's possible. And sometimes that means mistakes get made along the way. That makes it more exciting. Carla Reese, the polymath. Thank you. And the driver of contemporary flute music and experimentation. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to Skype. And I do look forward to meeting up with you again soon for a coffee, cake or lunch. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Carla. That's fun. As we draw to a close with the Talking Flukes Extra podcast this week, I'd like to say a very big thank you to all for listening and to draw your attention to Claire's Talking Flutes podcast next week which is going to be a very special one in that she's going to be talking about college auditions. And being Professor of Flute at the Royal Academy of Music in London, you may just get a few little tips on what they look for. So don't forget to give the Talking Flutes podcast channel a like, to follow us and to share, as usual, as this is the best way for all flute players to find us. Alternatively, you can always just say... Hi Siri, take us to Talking Flutes, or hello Alexa, take us to Talking Flutes podcast. But thinking about it, as you're listening to the podcast, you've already found us. <laughs> oh dear, 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 yes, of course you've already found us. Thank you once again, and may your coming week be great for you, personally and also for your flute playing.
goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are a podcast production by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.